Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hell. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Thank you for your word, Lord, as we finish up this book tonight. May uh, all that we have learned uh, find great meaning. And the fact that you have risen from the dead and all that you've said is now true, we know for sure. Help us, Lord, to understand and to live this word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we finish up this gospel. I was thinking about how, uh, how finishing up this gospel of Matthew, to me, is, is kind of like eating that last piece of pumpkin pie. Amen? I mean, it's really good, but then, you know, when it's gone, you're, you're kind of sad as well. And that's what I think about as we come to the end of Matthew. Now, thankfully, Matthew's gospel doesn't end with chapter 27 because the story of Christ would have been an absolute tragedy had it ended there, wouldn't it? We've just had the death and the burial. Chapter 28 is really the most important chapter in the book because it describes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it were not for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus would not be good news at all. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19, that our faith would be in vain without the resurrection, that Christians would be liars, that we would be in our sins and we would be the most miserable people in all the world had Christ not risen. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus is pretty important, isn't it? Now, the resurrection was a very important part in the preaching of the early church. When Peter preached his first sermon after the day of Pentecost, he talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the subsequent sermons in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4, and in Acts chapter 10, when Peter preached the gospel, he would always make reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as well, even when you go and you look in his epistles, he talked about a living hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul made the resurrection of Jesus Christ a theme of his teaching, of his preaching. When he wrote his letters, his letters are full of references to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection of Christ to the early believers was the ultimate proof that everything that Jesus said was absolutely true. 
And so when we come to verse 1 here, we, we see that chapter 28 begins with the Sabbath day ending. As, as the sun began to rise, the first day of the week arrived. Uh, the Jewish people didn't have names for each day of the week like, like we do. They simply counted them. And they started from the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was Saturday, uh, the, the seventh day. Therefore, Sunday was, you guessed it, the first day of the week. And Monday would therefore be the second day of the week. So chapter 28 opens up with the dawn of Sunday. Several women had made their way to the tomb of Jesus. Matthew mentions two of them. Um, these were two women that were watching, if you remember last week, as Joseph and Nicodemus prepared the, the body of Jesus for burial back in chapter 27 and verse 61. So along with Mary Magdalene and, and the, the mother of James and Joseph, there were also some other women present. Mark 16 tells us that Salome, the, the mother of James and, and John, was there. And, and that a woman by the name of Joanna was there. Luke tells us in Luke 24 verse 10. Um, Luke 24 verse 1 tells us that they had come to further anoint the body of Jesus. And, and I really don't know um, how they thought they would get to the body because the body was sealed by the Roman government, but maybe they were thinking that they would be granted some type of access because this was a religious thing and they were pious women. I don't really know, but uh, it doesn't really matter. It was their love and devotion to Jesus that, that brought them to this place. Now, Matthew records that there was another great earthquake. Now, one, one had already occurred at the cross a few days earlier, chapter 27, verse 51. But this earthquake is connected with the rolling away of the gravestone. The, angel said, the Bible says that as an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and, and rolled the stone away, that he sat on this stone for everyone to see him. Um, the angel had broken the Roman seal and not fled in fear. Think about that. Remember, it was sealed by the Romans, so people would be afraid to move it. But, but he wasn't afraid. He, he sat on it. He didn't hide. He said, hey, look, I'm here. I've broken the seal. And in verse 3 describes his countenance, that he shone with the glory of the Lord, that, that it was like lightning. Uh, his clothing was as white as snow. This implies that there was a glow surrounding him. He wasn't a human. Now, some have assumed that the angel came to let Jesus out of the tomb. And I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I believe Jesus was already out of the tomb when this happened. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away so that the women and the disciples could look in and discover that Jesus wasn't there anymore. In other words, Jesus needed no assistance getting out of the grave. No one had to come and say, okay, Jesus, you can come out now. The, the angel rolling away this stone, the whole idea there is, is to give access. It's almost like the splitting of the temple veil so people can see in. Now, the appearance of the angel coupled with this earthquake invokes great fear in these men who were feared, these guards. In fact, what was happening was, was so shocking to them that they violently shook became unconscious. What a sight that must have been. These powerful Romans lying on the ground, slain in the Spirit as it were, passed out from shock, waking up to see these common Jewish women standing there. Now, now the angel spoke to the women for comfort. He looks at him. he says, don't be afraid, which implies they were. 
Anytime in the Bible someone sees an angel, they're afraid. All these people who tell you they see angels and have coffee and tea with them and they just sit around and they talk like it's not that big of a deal, you know, it's you know, like Michael landing highway to heaven or touched by an angel. No. When people saw an angel in the Bible, they were scared to death. They always thought, man, this is the end for me. Angels are such powerful and brilliant creatures that they were always intimidating to mankind. Maybe these women thought that the angel was there to protect the body of Jesus and they were in trouble because they were trying to get to it. I don't know. But the angel tells the women, he says, I I know why you're here. You've come here and you're looking for Christ who was crucified. And then the angel tells the women, but but he's not in the tomb. He's risen from the dead. And he even invites them, come and look, see for yourselves, it's empty. I think it's important that he says this. He says, he is risen just as he said. Because remember that throughout these last three and a half years, Jesus has continually told his disciples that he's going to rise from the dead, but they just never got it. And so he's reminded them, he told you about this. Just as he said he would rise, he has risen. But now the angel invites them to see something that will really encourage their faith. Now with their eyesight, they will see that indeed the tomb is empty. You know, it's sad that oftentimes we want more than the Word of the Lord to believe. So many times we we need something tangible. And we don't need to be like that. We need to remember that the Word of the Lord is enough. If Christ says it, we can trust it. If Christ says it, church, we can absolutely trust it. And so the angel, he, he gets these ladies and says, it's not time to stand around, it's time to work. And, and he says, go tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. Don't hesitate. Go quickly. Go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Now Jesus had told the disciples that he would meet them in Galilee in chapter 26 of this gospel after he rose from the dead already. Jesus would meet with the eleven as we saw this morning. He would give them their marching orders. But this isn't the first time He appeared to them. I won't go through that whole scenario again because we went through it this morning. But remember, Jesus had appeared to them on multiple occasions. But but it does seem interesting that the first to see the resurrected Lord were were women. We might ask, well, why? Why why were women the first to see the resurrected Lord? And the answer is, is very simple when you think about it. The reason that women were the first to see the resurrected Lord is they were the first there. Isn't that deep? That's deep, isn't it? And I don't really think we should read anything other than that into it. They were the first there. Had the disciples been there, well, they would have been the first to see the resurrected Lord. But the women at the tomb reveal that they have a deeper devotion, probably even deeper than the eleven at that point. And there is some application that we can draw from that, that the closer we are to the Lord, the more we will see of Him. The closer we are to the Lord, the more we'll see of Him. You know, think about Thomas. Thomas decided not to go to a Sunday night service. The rest of the eleven gathered together on a Sunday night. Hey, let's have church, you know. Thomas said, you know, not me. And boy, what did he miss? He missed the resurrected Lord. He missed seeing Christ. You know, stay close to Christ even when days are dark because something awesome may just happen. And if you stray from the Lord when things are tough, there are things that you might just miss that the Lord wants you to see. 
Now the women did just as the angel told them. They, they immediately left to tell all the disciples. They were filled with emotion. The text says they were filled with fear, but they were also filled with joy. The fear was the result of being in the presence of an angel. Maybe it was also fear of the religious leaders. Maybe it was also fear of the Roman government, but they also had joy. They had joy because they knew now that indeed Jesus was alive. And and their excitement is is obvious in that they run to the disciples. Now as we study all four Gospels, we're able to piece together a timeline of what happened. Mary Magdalene had, had not been with the other women when the angel appeared to them. She had went and told Peter and John that the grave was empty. Peter and John came to the tomb along with Mary and recognized, hey, Mary is is telling the truth. They left and Mary Magdalene stayed behind and an angel then appeared to Mary and then the Lord Himself, John 20, 16 tells us, appeared to her. Remember saying her name? And Mary then went and told the disciples all that had happened. As all of this is taking place, the other women are en route to the disciples to tell them what the angel has told them. And at this point, they encounter Jesus. He he gives them a a very simple greeting. They immediately recognize who He is, fall to their knees, worship the Lord, even grab hold of His feet, which, by the way, proves that Jesus was not a phantom, proves that Jesus was not a spirit, but proves that Jesus had a tangible body. They grabbed His feet. He had risen with flesh and bone. They they weren't hallucinating. This wasn't His spirit. They were in the very physical presence of Jesus Himself. And then in verse 10, He calms their fears. He says, don't be afraid. Hey, they've been through a lot. It's been a rough weekend for them. And He commands these women to to take this message to the disciples. But I want you to note the intimacy with which Jesus describes the disciples. He calls them brothers. You know, God's grace is, is evident here. Which, by the way, many people believe... I don't, want, I don't want to chase this rabbit, okay? But I do want to say this. Many people believe that the fact that He doesn't say disciples, but says brothers, gives, gives a lot of... Uh, Wait to the argument that he wasn't just talking about let just the disciples know. That the brothers would actually include that group of 500 that Paul talks about that saw him. I don't know how strong that argument is, but I just wanted to interject there. Go tell my brothers, go tell those who belong to me. What did Jesus say? He that does the will of him who sent me, the same as my mother, my brother, my sister. That's who my family is. So it could be that that he's inviting his, his family to come see them. Go to Galilee. Wait on the Lord. There you'll see me. Now remember, Galilee is the region in which Jesus was raised. He mentioned it, um, Bryce mentioned it this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. Galilee, this place that was looked down upon. The Galilee, a place that was considered by many to be only where people of, of ill reputation lived. Matthew 4.15 calls it this, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, of the Gentiles would always be a slur to a Jew. Galilee of the Gentiles. And I think it's interesting that Jesus says, meet me there, because it's really important for us to remember that the message of Christ was for the world. 
The message of Christ was for the lowly Gentile. The message of Christ was for those born on the wrong side of the tracks. Those who were disregarded and and, and were, were objects of ridicule and slurs. Meet me there. Maybe that's the reason that Jesus commissioned them there. To remind them that they're not just to reach out to the elite. But they're to reach out to Jew and Gentile. All who are in the world. And that brings us to verse 11. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. Now they, that were they here, refers to the women that Christ had spoken to after His resurrection. We just talked about them in in, in verses 5 through 10. They were on their way to speak to the disciples. The Roman soldiers at the tomb of Jesus are now in a dilemma. Because it's only going to be a matter of time. Before everybody's saying, hey, did you hear about Jesus? They're saying He rose from the dead. And the first place people would go to see if this is true was where? The tomb. And when they got to the tomb, they knew what they would see. They knew that when people got to the tomb, they would see an empty tomb. There was no time to do anything else about that. The tomb was empty. And those Roman soldiers who were stationed at that tomb... We're going to have a whole lot of explaining to do. I was going to say that in my Desi Arnaz voice, but I decided not to right before. So I didn't know if y'all would get that or not. Amen. I have no idea where this mind is going, y'all, when I'm up here preaching. Now, most people believe that there were only two guards at the tomb. Uh, Probably because of paintings and Easter plays and stuff like that that we've seen. But the Scripture is clear that there were more than two guards at the tomb there. Look at verse 11. It says, some of the watch came into the city. That means that, that, that some of them stayed back if some of them went into the city. So the language would suggest that at least four... If some stayed and some went, some is plural, so at least two went and at least two stayed back. When Peter was arrested in the book of Acts, um, Herod had 16 Roman guards watch him. And the Romans usually put at least four guards to watch someone because uh, they would watch through the night. And the night was broken up into four watches. And a watch was anywhere from two to three hours. And a different soldier would have a different watch of the night. And so it would be easy to, to say that, that, that perhaps there were four to eight soldiers here. Maybe even more who were watching this tomb. Now the guards that went into the city immediately reported this. To who? To the chief priest. Because they probably figured this was a safer place to go than to Pilate. Going to Pilate to them would have been like just, you know, probably losing their lives. And they told the chief priest, they said, all the things that were done. In other words, everything that's been happening. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 4, you know, going even back further, you know, when you look at the crucifixion of the Lord, then you look at the earthquake, and, the, and you look at the angel and the stone rolling away and all that stuff. They had a story. The chief priests and all that were aware of what happened on Friday, but what happened on Sunday they had no clue about. And they had a story to tell these men. And these guards, these guards, they were in fear. Why? Because of all that they had seen. And now they were confused and they were concerned about their own safety. We're going to die, they were probably thinking. We're going to be killed for this. Now you would think that would be enough to convince the religious leaders that Jesus is the Messiah. 
But that's not enough. They've so shut their eyes to the truth of God's Word and God's work that nothing in the world will ever convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. So in response to this news that they get from the soldiers, what do they do? Well, they do like any good Baptist would do. They call a committee meeting, right? They assemble with the elders. They take counsel. That means that they came together to make an official decision. And so what happens in, in verses 12 through 14 is the decision that was, that was come to in that committee meeting. The decision of the Sanhedrin. And they decided on three things. Number one, they decided to bribe the guards. Verse 12 says that they gave the guards a large sum of money. You know, I thought... How interesting it is that they paid the guards more than they paid Judas. They didn't pay Judas a large sum of money by no stretch of the imagination. But I guess it would have probably been large because the soldiers were splitting it. Maybe you could say that. Judas was one person. I don't know how much money was paid, but the text says it was large. It makes you wonder, by the way, how accustomed these religious leaders were to giving bribes. In Matthew's Gospel, in just a couple of chapters, we see him giving bribes two times. Now, by the way, this isn't being a good steward of God's money, is it? You think the people who are giving to that temple treasury know that they're using this money to pay people off, to, to give bribes, really makes your mind go back to the Old Testament when the prophets often preached about these people who would take bribes to pervert justice. All of that was fulfilled in what happened to Jesus. They were certainly sons of their fathers from the Old Testament. God's money was being used to do the devil's work. And that was a shame. But we should also notice that these Roman soldiers were easily bought. It's amazing how money can blind a person. They didn't care that this miraculous event had just occurred. That they had been knocked unconscious. That they had this earthquake. That there was this angel. That the body of Jesus was gone. All of a sudden, there was an opportunity to profit financially. And that was all that mattered to them. Hey, we can save our own lives and profit financially. We'll take it. So the first thing they did was bribe the soldiers. We'll give you this money. Keep your mouth shut. Secondly, they enlisted the soldiers as the spreaders, as the spreaders, whatever word would be used there, wellly, as those who would spread their gospel, their false gospel, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In verse 13, they instructed the soldiers to tell the people that the disciples stole the body of Jesus while they were sleeping. You see, the... the Soldiers would really be the only ones who knew what, what happened because they were there. Now this tactic was dangerous. Why? Because in order to spread this lie, they would have to admit they were sleeping. Remember when the Philippian jailer, remember when the, whenever the, all of the guys got loose in, in the book of Acts? And he said, man, they're going to kill me. Remember that? Remember Paul wouldn't leave the prison because he didn't want the poor old boy to be killed? It's no different than this right here. We fall asleep, we, we could be killed. So why, why do they buy into this? Why do they say, okay, we'll say we, we're asleep? Well, think about it. What else are they going to say? That's the best 
possible scenario for them to just say, you know what, we, we fell asleep. There's no other explanation for them to give. Think about it. There was no fight. No one had been injured. Zealots couldn't be blamed, a political movement, for coming and, and, and fighting with them at all because they didn't have a scratch on them. They could say, oh, the angel of the Lord came down. And Rome would say, guys, you think I was born yesterday? You think I just fell off the turnip truck? No, it didn't happen. So it's really the best case scenario for them. Well, we just, we just tell them we fell asleep, which would be something people would believe. You watch through the night, it's easy to fall asleep. And then the third thing they did was they said, we will protect you. Now, the Sanhedrin was used to getting their way with Pilate. And these religious leaders promised that, that, that if the governor wanted to harm them for falling asleep, that they would intervene and they would do everything in their power to make sure that they were not harmed. Now, the religious leaders didn't care for the soldiers. That wasn't their motive. They weren't thinking, oh, these poor Roman soldiers, we don't want them to die. It was more of a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back situation. These two groups of people needed one another, so they united in this satanic scheme to do the will of the devil. Now the Roman soldiers, they agreed to this plan, verse 15. I mean, what else could they do? In their mind, having no other option, they agreed to be the evangelist of the religious leaders. Make a little money, hopefully be protected by the corrupt Jewish religious system. And so these soldiers began telling people their lies. They lied about themselves. They lied about the disciples. They even lied about the Lord by not sharing the truth about what happened. And that lie took root. People believed that lie. Matthew probably wrote this gospel around A.D. 63. And Matthew said when he wrote this gospel that that was still the main story that was being shared. Some 30 years later, when he wrote this gospel, he said, even up to this day, that's what everybody keeps saying. Everybody keeps saying, the disciples came and stole the body. You know, someone would bring up the resurrection of Jesus. People would say, oh, he didn't rise. No, we didn't heard that story. He, uh, his disciples, they stole his body. Such a convenient lie, you know, for these religious leaders. But the Roman soldiers knew the truth. They knew the truth, and the religious leaders did as well. Now, for the sake of being objective here, let's, let's just consider the claim. Let's, let's consider this claim. That Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but that the disciples came and stole His body. Let's, let's consider that claim. Well, if they did, if that's truly what happened, why didn't the Jewish leaders go and get the body back? They had a Roman military. They had their, their own soldiers. They had all the resources they needed. It would be nothing to pursue these 11 men, fishermen, nobodies. They would find these men easily, these uneducated men. And then they could just take the body of Jesus back and show it to everyone and say, look, yeah, hey, we've got the body. Here it is. But somehow they seemed to convince them that not only did the, 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 the disciples steal the body, but they did such a good job that no one could ever find it again. And no one could find them. 
So that's the first thing that we would think about if we're just trying to be objective about what happened to the body of Jesus. As well, why would the disciples want the body of Jesus? Jesus had already been given a very respectful burial. wasn't like John the Baptist who, whose disciples had to go get his headless body and find a decent burial for him. wasn't like Judas who laid out there to, to the elements exposed. Jesus had been given a great burial, hadn't He? The disciples could not have given Jesus a better burial than Joseph gave. And so if they wanted the body of Jesus to bury it, that that wouldn't make any sense. Now some might think, well, they wanted the body so they could make folks think Jesus rose. But that would be foolish too. Why would they risk their lives to get this body when it would contradict what they knew to be the truth? The disciples, when we look at this, they were already ready to quit. Once Jesus died, they thought it was over. They were ready to just go fish again, just do what they were doing before they met Jesus, to get on with their lives. If they knew Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why in the world would they want the body and put their lives in jeopardy More and more, we already know they were scared to death. It's just not a logical thing. It doesn't make any sense. And here's another consideration. The soldier story doesn't make sense. First of all, how could all of them fall asleep at the same time and sleep through these disciples rolling away a large stone and stealing the body of Jesus? I've already shown you that there were at least four there. So how would all four of them fall asleep at the same time and then not a single one of them wake up while a big group of disciples come and roll away a large boulder and take a dead body out? Somebody would wake up. There would be noise. There would be commotion going on. And in fact, if they were asleep, let's just buy into this idea that they were asleep, that they all slept through this. If they all slept through this, how do they know the disciples did it? Right? If they were all asleep and slept through the whole thing, how in the world would they know it was the disciples who did it? And so the the, the story of these soldiers is not a reasonable story. If these people were put on the stand and they brought up the evidence that I just brought you, any lawyer worth anything would be able to put so many holes in their case that no jury would ever believe what they were saying on the stand. It doesn't make any sense at all. The story that the religious leaders concocted was not a very good one. And, by the way, it required that Jewish people believed Roman soldiers. But it was a convenient story. And in in, in a pinch, it was the best that they could come up with. And this is what we need to remember as we think about this. Those who don't want to believe will always find a way not to. That's just how it is. It doesn't matter how much evidence or reason or logic you give them. If they don't want to believe it, they're just not going to believe it. Nothing has changed, folks. But here's the truth. The truth is Jesus rose from the dead. 
And the truth is, the resurrection of Jesus is really the only story that makes sense in history. The only one that's really logical. And without that truth that Christ has risen from the dead, we're without hope. But with that truth, we have a hope that cannot be taken away. Because the one who told us all these wonderful things about eternity and heaven and hope and love and grace and forgiveness, everything He said is true. Because He rose from the dead, we know it's true. You know, all the soldiers in the world, by the way, couldn't have kept Jesus in that tomb. Don't blame the soldiers. You could have all the soldiers in the world there, amen? Whether it was two, four, eight, eight million, they could have not kept Jesus in that tomb. And I want to tell you something, all the atheists in this world, all the unbelievers in this world, all those who hold to different religions or no religion, they can't keep Jesus who rose from the dead from coming back. And He will. But also remember this, few things blind people more than money. Amen? Well, those Roman soldiers got blinded by just a little bit of money. And the same is true in our culture. The reason a lot of people in this world who run organizations and businesses and corporations would never believe the gospel because if they did, it would so change what they do that they'd make a lot less money. There's big money in sin, by the way. Amen? A man can get rich off sin. You ever heard of old Hugh Hefner? Never wore anything but a bathrobe. Made plenty off what? Sin. Off of sin. And the third little summary truth that I have for you is lies have a way of spreading more quickly and sticking longer than the truth. Lies have a way of spreading more quickly and sticking longer than the truth. That lie spread and it stuck, but it only stuck with those who did not want to believe the truth. And the last thought I got will be through with the Gospel of Matthew. It's amazing how far unredeemed people will go to justify their own sin. It's amazing how far unredeemed people will go to justify their sin. Look at all they're going through to justify the murder of Jesus. And I want to tell you, if you want to find a way to justify your sin, you will. You'll find a way to justify. We live in a culture today that justifies everything. In fact, there is no more sin. Everything's just sickness, you know. They're not drunks anymore. They're alcoholics, you know. They're not dopeheads anymore. They're, they're addicts. I don't want to get into a whole lot of the other sins in our culture, but there is no sin anymore. Everything's clinicalized. We've justified sin. But I want to tell you something. You won't justify it before the Lord. You will not justify it before the Lord. And when these Roman soldiers and those religious leaders stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, no matter what they said, their sin would not be justified. They'd have to give an account for all that they had done. What a beautiful, beautiful gospel Matthew was. Amen? I'm so glad that we were able to walk through it. Um, we start a new series of sermons this coming Sunday on the God's greatest gifts. I'm excited about this series. On Sunday nights, we'll be looking at various Christmas-themed messages.
And so I'm excited on, uh, on our Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. It'll be Christmas all the way up through the month of December. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we thank you that he rose from the dead and that nothing in this world could keep him from doing it. Help us, Lord, now to live out the power of the resurrection through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.